You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the Bible one book at a time. We're in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. Well, I shouldn't say in the middle. We are nearing the end of the book of Jeremiah. And uh, we today are going to be talking about three chapters in particular. Well, I guess you could say four. Uh, Chapters 39 through 41. And then where it adds to the discussion, we'll probably bring chapter 52 in. But chapter 52, the last chapter of the book, is really uh, kind of a recap to just remind the reader of the purpose of the prophecy of Jeremiah. So that's why it has repetition. It's just kind of a recap. But there are some details that are included there that strangely are not found in these three chapters. And uh, Andrew's going to do our reading today. I'm Drew Kaiser, and I've got Andrew Kingsley with me. And uh, he has outlined this according to... Mostly the outcasts that uh, are a part of this story. There are a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, God's wrath comes to full bloom and uh, he casts out his people who have rejected him. Right. It's this prophecy that we've been seeing the whole time. Uh, It's finally come to fruition here in these chapters. And we're kind of getting to see the fallout of when that prophecy happens. Because the prophecy has been the whole time Babylon's going to come in and destroy Jerusalem. And just in the first two verses of chapter 39, that's exactly what happens. So the first uh, outcast that we're going to look at is going to be Jerusalem itself, the city. So verse 39, or chapter 39, verse 1, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. So this ninth year is 588. And if we're trying to keep this in perspective and remember the timeline we've been trying to follow, this is the year 588 when the siege begins. And we read some stories last week uh, with Jeremiah being thrown into the cistern uh, that took place in this two-year period between the siege and then the actual breach of the walls in 586 when uh, Nebuchadnezzar's forces are going to just level all of Jerusalem. So it's sieged and it's breached right there in the first two verses. And then you can read down in verse 8 that the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, they burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So this is where the city of Jerusalem falls. And Drew, this is where uh, you brought in chapter 52, uh, starting in verse 12, I believe. Right, this is one of the places where chapter 52 adds something to chapters 39 through 41, right? Right. Yeah, I think this is, uh, it was the temple, right? Yeah, for some reason, the temple, while the, the city walls and the palaces and the structures and the the buildings of Jerusalem are mentioned in 39 through 41. The destruction of the temple is not mentioned there. You have to go over to chapter 52 to get that. And like you said, it's verses 12 and following. And Yeah, he says in verse 13, I don't know if you're going to read some of this. No, no. In verse 13 it says, uh, He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house was burnt down. So there's a little more uh, details in there about how much the city... Uh, was destroyed. Well, the next outcast we want to look at, really a couple put together one, is Zedekiah and the nobles. 
or the officials of Judah. And that starts in verse 3 of chapter 39. Uh, what happens is, just to put this in the short version, Zedekiah and all of the nobles run out of the city. They flee because they uh, once the walls are breached and the armies of Nebuchadnezzar are in the city, they run away. They don't stay to defend. Uh, and we read something a chapter ago about Zedekiah abandoning uh, his wives in the city. And so Zedekiah abandons his kids, his wives, everybody. Uh, well, he has some of his children with him, as we'll see, because once the king of Babylon catches up to him, guess what happens? His sons are all slaughtered before his eyes. So some of his sons left with him, apparently, because they caught him out in the field. Uh, Zedekiah runs out of the city trying to leave, but then the armies of Nebuchadnezzar catch up to him, take him and all the officials with him, the party that was with him, back to where Nebuchadnezzar is stationed at this time. That's a place called Riblah. Did I pronounce that right? I think so. It's up in the north, right? right. It's like Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to get too far down. Yeah. And so he had a lot of this business that he took care of directly brought up to him Mm-hmm. Really north of what we consider to be Israel. Yeah, it's about, is it 200 miles? miles? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, a couple hundred miles yeah. away from Jerusalem. Right. Yeah, so it's a long way off. And that's where uh, Zedekiah is. He's taken up there along with these nobles. And this is a pretty brutal scene. In verse 6, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. So Zedekiah doesn't have a very happy ending to his story. He's going to die in prison in Babylon. The last thing that he saw with his eyes was his sons and then all of his, I guess, advisors, counselors, or whatever, the nobles of Jerusalem. They're all put to death. Then his eyes get plucked out. So not a real happy, uh, not a real happy ending there for Zedekiah. Uh, then we have the people... In chapter 39, verses 9 and 10, here's what winds up happening to the people after all this takes place. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who deserted to him, and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields. So the people, what happens to the general populace? They're either taken to Babylon or the poorest people are left, and they're given some land to take over. Uh, That brings us to Jeremiah. So what's going to happen to Jeremiah after Jerusalem falls? Starting in verse 11 and reading on through verse 14, you find out that Nebuchadnezzar gives some instruction to this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, and tells him in verse 12, Take him, look after him well, do not harm him, but deal with him as he tells you. So basically, do whatever Jeremiah tells you to do. We can talk a little bit more about why Jeremiah would have been given so much authority by Nebuchadnezzar uh, in the next section. But it's interesting to note that he says, do whatever Jeremiah wants. Uh, And he gives him an option, and Jeremiah elects to stay in Judah. And you get the short version of that right there in chapter 39, verses 11 through 14. But you get a longer version of that in chapter 40, verses 1 through 6. Uh, where a very similar, it's kind of the same scene, I guess, but just drawn out. It gives you their conversation in between. Here's what happens. Um, 
Well, you know what I think is happening here between those two? Mm-hmm. I think they're in two different places. Uh, in that first place, the Nebuchadnezzar is giving the orders, and uh, where where are they located there in chapter 39? In chapter they 39, are, um, I believe they're in... Well, they take him from the court of the guard in verse okay. 14. So he's, he's in the court of the guard, which is in Jerusalem. Right. But if you notice in chapter 40, he's in Ramah. And there's a question about why he's in Ramah. Someone that I read said that he was accidentally arrested and taken with the people to Ramah, where the deportation was to take place. Okay, yeah, I read but, something similar. You know, I think it's more likely that that was kind of the staging area where they, you know, he goes here, he goes there, take that man here, yeah. I got my orders here. So that's why you have these two scenes. They're actually separate scenes. Okay. They're very repetitive, but they're separate scenes because one takes place at the court of the guard in Jerusalem, and then yeah. they're like, okay, I'm going to make a note that the guy over in Ramah is to send you, is to keep you with the people here in Jerusalem. Then he's got to go there to get processed or whatever. I think that's yeah, what's right. happening. Right, yeah, I didn't think about that. Um I just read on to that part where it says in verse 14, they took him to Gedalia and just kind of assumed this. Because in chapter 40, what happens is a conversation and then Jeremiah goes to Gedalia. So yeah, I I missed that. That's really good to point out. Uh, But what happens is uh, this guy, Nebuzaradan, and that's a really cool name. uh, Nebuzaradan gives Jeremiah the choice. He says, you can do whatever you want, basically. And you can read that in verses 3 through 5. But he basically says to him, if you want to come with me to Babylon, you can. If you want to stay here, you can. But if you stay here, you need to go to Gedal- or Gedaliah. Excuse me. I must have yeah. said his name wrong. Uh, I've been doing that all afternoon, by the way. You've I'm done it twice it. in the podcast oh, already. Yeah. <laughs> Just now noticed it. Gedaliah. I've been calling him Gedaliah this whole time. Yeah. And then we looked it up, and it's Gedaliah, and so now I'm struggling to pronounce it the right way. So Gedaliah, um, G, I'm just going to call him G, um, he ends up giving him the, or he ends up taking Jeremiah, I guess. He gets custody. I don't know if that's the right term. Yeah, seems like that. But that's what Jeremiah decides to do. We can talk about why in the next section. Uh, but we got to fly through this really quickly. The next guy, who's not an outcast, so Jeremiah's not an outcast, and neither is this guy you might recognize, Ebed-Melech. And you look in chapter 39, verses 15 through 18, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and he says, Go to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, who you remember from our last episode, was the man who went to the king and said, Hey, take Jeremiah out of the cistern. This isn't right. He should be taken out. And that's exactly what ends up happening. So he was a good man, uh, a eunuch. And so this message comes to him from Jeremiah that says, uh, you will be delivered. And you see on verse 18, I will surely save you and you will not fall by the sword. You will have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me. So that's kind of the end of the story there on Ebed-Melech. Now we're getting into some pretty interesting stuff with this guy, Gedaliah. In chapter 40, we start in verse 7. We find out that he was appointed governor by probably this guy, Nebuzaradan. I don't know if uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself would have appointed him, but that doesn't really matter. Either way. I think he's not coming any further south than that Ribla right, territory where like he it. is. So he's 
it seems at this point he's turned all the daily operations over to this this guy. Yeah, Nebuzaradan, which yeah. is good to know for a Bible trivia game, I'm guessing. Maybe that'll yeah. show up at VBS this year. Uh, so, Gedaliah is put over the region of Judah. And you can read in verse 10 about all these uh, subjects that come to him. I guess really, actually in verses 8 and 9, it mentions some people that come to him. But just get this picture in your head of a lot of... Everybody hears that Gedaliah is in charge now. And they all come to him at this place called Mizpah. And things are going pretty good. You read verse 12. He, uh, you find out what's going on there. All the people come to Mizpah. The end of verse 12 says, And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. So, so it seems like Mizpah is now the capital of Judea. Right. That's where all uh, the which Jews Which is are. really strange to think about. But Jerusalem is uninhabitable at this mm-hmm. point. Nobody wants to live there. You certainly can't run the government from there. Yeah. So they have moved it to Mizpah, which is seven or eight miles north of Jerusalem, still in the okay. central area, but but it's a totally different town. I think Mizpah, oh, there is something significant about Mizpah. That's where Saul was coronated or anointed oh, king. So it kind of comes full circle around that uh, the first king of Israel yeah. was... Do I get a high five? I mean, yeah. uh, you were pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, the first king of Israel uh, was right uh, coronated there at Mizpah. Now you'll look it up and find out that it, I'm mistaken or something. But <laughs> yeah. uh, then at the very end of the monarchy, yeah. the new, the very next governor, who's far less powerful than a king, sets up his administration in Mizpah. Yeah, they have kinda, to, you know, Jerusalem just can't work anymore. It's yeah, sad. It's interesting bookends, I guess, on, yeah. the, on the idea. That's really cool. Um, and now we're done. That's it. That's all we're going to do. No, uh, we'll continue on here. Where are we now? I, I've been writing all this stuff down. Okay, so here's what happens. Gedaliah is in charge. He's at this place, Mizpah. Uh, things are going pretty good, and usually when things are going really good in a movie, what's about to happen? Something bad. And that's what happens here. Verse 13, this guy named Johanan, his name is important. A lot of difficult, odd names here, but he's important. Johanan comes to Gedaliah and says to him, uh, Do you know, this is verse 14, that Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, or Baalis, however you want to pronounce that. Again, a lot of hard names. Uh, The king of the Ammonites is the point there. He has sent this guy Ishmael, which is another important name, a little bit easier, uh, the king of the Ammonites sent Ishmael to kill Gedaliah. This is what jo- Johanan is telling Gedaliah. Wow, this is complicated. So he gets a, a warning. Hey, this guy's going to come kill you. Let me go and kill him for you, and nobody will know about it. So we can put this away before it ever even happens. And here is the response of Gedaliah in verse 16. You shall not do this thing, for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. Well, it would have been nice if he was. And that leads us to our next character, Ishmael. Uh, We get into chapter 41 in the first three verses. Ishmael comes up to Gedaliah at Mizpah. They sit down together and they have a meal. Then in verse 2, it says, Ishmael rose up and the ten men with him, and they struck down Gedaliah with the sword and killed him. Uh, Verse 3, they also killed pretty much everybody else who happened to be there. Uh, we'll find out that there are some at Mizpah who are left alive. They're taken captive. 
But it looks like all the prominent people, all the supporters of Gedaliah have been murdered. At Including this point. some Chaldeans or Babylonians. Right. And I like the, the language here in the ESV. It says, Ishmael struck down the Judeans and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we found that happened to be there, wrong place, wrong time. Right. Um, so continuing on. Ishmael's story is not over yet. So he sets himself up in Mizpah, this uh, place where Gedaliah was, where everyone was coming to, kind of the new capital. Uh, he sets himself up here. And something interesting, uh, 80 people come. And they are from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria. Their beards are shaven, their clothes are torn, and their bodies are gashed. A lot going on to say they're very upset. Most likely because of the state of the nation of Israel, is my guess. Mm -hmm. They're very upset, they're mourning, and they're trying to come to what's left of the temple to offer sacrifices, to give a grain offering, actually is what it says. Um, and so Ishmael is really... Uh, deceiving here. He comes out to him. He's crying too, trying to make it look like he's sad also about what's happened to Israel. And he says, come in to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And that's in verse 6. So basically he says, come on in and let uh, Gedaliah and let us all sit around and you know mourn the loss of our nation. Well, what do you think happens? Um, Ishmael kills all of them except 10. So 70 of these men are killed, and the other 10 are only spared because they say, hey, we have some food that you can use. We have some rations. We have wheat, barley, oil, and honey, so don't kill us. So he doesn't. Um, so Ishmael takes all the bodies, people he's killed, throws them into a cistern. Uh, probably not the same cistern we talked about last week, but he throws them into a cistern. And then here's something interesting at the end of verse 10. After all these things, he makes plans to set out to cross over to the Ammonites. So remember that. I want That's who had the idea of the assassination plot right. to begin with. Yeah, the so king. now we've switched enemies even. You know, and you've pointed out that this is mm -hmm. kind of confusing because there's so many names. We start this section out, Babylon's the enemy, and yeah. now we're fighting the Ammonites. Mm -hmm. And we're not even, you know, I'm saying we as the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. We're we're hardly here anymore. And it's kind of a weird Jewish-Babylonian coalition mm -hmm. against Ammon. Yeah. Which, you know, you wouldn't expect to have happened. Right. Uh, and I want to look a little bit more into that in the next section if we have time. But suffice it to say, Ishmael comes in probably with the idea of supporting Ammon. Um, then we get to verse 11, and we come back to Johanan. Remember, we said his name was going to be important when we talked about him in verse 13 of the last chapter. Uh, Johanan has a bunch of leaders with him, um, leaders of some kind of small military forces, probably military forces that had kind of gotten out of Jerusalem in time and kind of you know hid themselves out in the countryside or Somehow, there are these people that did not get deported. Maybe these were some of the poor people, but they did not get taken out to Babylon. Uh, so they hear about all these horrible things that Ishmael has done, and they go up to him, and they fight against him, and they win. Ishmael escapes in verse 15 and goes to the Ammonites. But either way, uh, he actually takes eight men with him. But all the captives at Mizpah, are you know they are freed it says soldiers women children and eunuchs uh, they're all freed 
But now everybody's worried about the Babylonians. Uh, verse 18 says, They were afraid of them because Ishmael the son of Nethaniah had struck down Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor of the land. So now they're kind of afraid of Babylon because what are they going to do when, we, when they find out that the man they appointed to rule over us has been murdered? So we're in a very interesting state, really a... Um, Just when you think it can't get any worse. Yeah, what's the word I'm looking for? Tumultuous, maybe? Yeah. Tumultuous times. Yes, pivotal. Israel. Pivotal because... You're, this is a cliffhanger episode. This isn't the end, and next week we're going to be talking about this move to Egypt and see how well that goes and see what Jeremiah thinks about it. Jeremiah is not very uh, prominent in this particular episode. But I think the main, the main thing that um, we want to get across here, and the reason why we're calling this episode Outcasts, kind of comes from a text that we haven't referred to yet, but it is parallel to these chapters in Jeremiah, and that is 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 20. And that text says that it was because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And that's what we're reading about here, the casting out of all the people who had betrayed the Lord, rebelled against him, turned a deaf ear to his prophecies through his servant Jeremiah, with two exceptions, Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech. Ebed-Melech being the Ethiopian who rescued Jeremiah from the cistern, right. obviously a good man. So you see something here in that God cast them out in his anger, but he embraced the two who had been loyal to him. And we assume others as well, but these are the two that are mentioned. There's a word applied to Ebed-Melech in chapter 39, verse 17, translated deliver. Uh, the Lord says, I will deliver you on that day to Ebed-Melech. And it literally means to snatch away as, you know, a shepherd would snatch a sheep out of the wolf's mouth. So on the one hand, you have him flinging or casting away, throwing away from his presence the enemies of God, those who had opposed Jeremiah's word, those who had refused to listen to him and continue in their sin. And then on the other hand, you have Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech who are being protected by God, snatched out of the mouth of the wolf, as it were, and protected and cared for. This is the part, Andrew, where we like to go back over the text and hit those curious parts that, uh, you know, maybe don't make a whole lot of sense or there was just a lot more to discuss and sometimes hit some philosophical issues, some big questions that need to be asked that we just don't have time to ask whenever we're laying down the basic foundational story or text. So, uh, you know, you and I, really, we really like this part 
because um, oh, it's yeah. fun to us, but we realize we can't do it too long <laughs> or we will bore our listeners, and we don't want to do that because, listeners, you come first in our hearts. Uh, we we want right. you to be entertained. Uh-huh. We don't want to bore you. But uh, as we're going through this, there, there are some things that I, I don't find boring at all. Um, and the first one I wanted to start with was a tie-in. I want to ask you what you think about this. Uh-oh. There, there were a couple of prophecies that Jeremiah made regarding Zedekiah that may have been fulfilled by the blinding of Zedekiah in Riblah. Um, let's okay, let's yeah. look at those. Um, one of them is in chapter 32, verse 4. They're basically, I don't know that we have to read both of them because they're exactly the same. He says it twice, uh, but in chapter 32, verse 4, Jeremiah says, Zedekiah, king of Judah shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. Yeah, I remember that. Now, that's also stated again in chapter 34, verse 3. Now, what do we usually mean when we say they were seeing things eye to eye? That's usually a good thing, right? Yeah, kind of like they agree. Yeah, yeah, that's... This is not so much. I, I don't think that's the meaning here. I think that that is a cloaked prophecy of the gouging out of Zedekiah's eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be an eye-for-eye confrontation that Nebuchadnezzar wins. At the end yeah. of it, Nebuchadnezzar still has his eyes, and Zedekiah doesn't. Right. So, a really interesting uh, prophecy there that is predictive in a way that neither Zedekiah nor any of his advisors, anybody standing around, maybe not even Jeremiah, understood would how it would come to pass. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that was a saying that was used all that often today. You know, you're going to see eye to eye. We say that all the time, and we think, oh, they're finally going to come to an agreement. Mm-hmm. No, he got his eyes gouged out. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I just found that really fascinating. And another thing that I thought was interesting were the people that were taken into captivity versus the people who stayed behind. In this final fall of Jerusalem, when we should point out that this kind of began in 605 with Daniel and his friends and the group that went with them... And then in 597, another big group of over 10,000 Jews, I think that's a larger group than this, yeah. was taken out. That included Ezekiel, and it included uh, Jehoiachin, the king. And uh, so the finest of the land, in many ways, had already been taken out. And then we have this these people taken out here, and uh, the group is described as, um, you know, verse 9 of chapter 39... The rest of the people who were left in the city, so those are the people who stayed behind and tried to live out the siege for a year and a half. And then you've got the deserters. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible here. The deserters who had gone over to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, uh, Jeremiah was preaching that this, you know, this is your best bet, is to go ahead and deport to Babylon. And so there were a number of people who evidently listened to Jeremiah and put themselves under the yoke of Babylon. Yeah. It's translated deserters here. Literally, it's followers who had fallen. So it's not really a complimentary phrase that's given. I saw one translation called them turncoats. So it's not a real positive 
thing, but at the same time, you look at it, and that's exactly what Jeremiah said they should do, uh, is go out to Babylon and give up, because Babylon's going to win this thing. And then you had the rest of the people, and some people tie that in with chapter 52, verse 15, which has the word um, artisans, which I think has to do with skilled workers. Yeah. Uh, because he'd already talked about, I mean, it would be redundant to say the rest of the people, the deserters, and the rest of the people. Yeah. Okay, you already said the rest of the people. So maybe that has to do with the artisans. And those left behind are some of the poorest people who had nothing. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't really interested in bringing them into Babylon. It seems that he's interested in people who can contribute to Babylonia Right. And in some way through labor or design or art or even leadership. Yeah, it's kind of, he's taking his spoils of war here. Yeah. You know, like guys like Daniel, he wants in his court. You know, he wants the brightest and the best to serve him or, you know, even to be very prominent leaders for him. But then the people, well, that didn't really make much of themselves in Judah... They're poor. They're probably not going to make much of themselves here in Babylon. I'm just going to leave them there. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting, this idea here of the poor people gaining vineyards and fields and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, this is probably, uh, you know, great for them. Life-changing for them in one sense. Bad because... It depends. It depends. Uh, you know, because I was thinking about it. Well, go ahead and say your bad part. Well, bad because, you know, the city lies in ruins and yeah. that they're... You know, similar to these people that come to um, Ishmael, you know, with their that have actually cut themselves. Oh, that's another thing um, I wanted to talk about. I didn't even write that down. But um, uh, these guys have cut themselves. They're so upset. Uh, you know, I'm sure that all Jewish people were at that level of grief at this point, like Nehemiah mm-hmm. is. You know, when Nehemiah finds out. Um, but at the same time, it kind of reminds me of he who is first shall be last, he who is last shall be first. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, what it really brought to mind was blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Uh, that kind of I just I don't know. I, I see what you're saying. I also wonder if they are raising these vineyards for themselves or if these are going to be shipped out to Babylon for the king's needs. I would guess probably to Babylon. I mean, surely they could keep back some of it for themselves and have homes. And and certainly there were people in in Jerusalem who were being oppressed by this corrupt government. Yeah. And uh, the removal of these guys did not hurt them in the least. But they no longer had the temple. They no longer had the, the the infrastructure um, but yeah. they, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had put a governor in place. Of course, um, Ishmael messed that up. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I wanted to point out was that not everybody was exiled and not everybody was left behind. You had the scores of people who were murdered. Right. Uh, which included Nebuchadnezzar and his sons and some other noblemen. And then also in chapter 52, we read verse 24 following that a number of priests... The chief priest, Sariah, uh, Zephaniah, the second priest, three officers of the temple, so a lot of religious leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a city official and some others that the king of Babylon, Babylon struck down, put them to death in Ribla in the land of Hamath. 
Um, the reason should be obvious why he did that. He's trying to keep any political structure from being rebuilt or any religion, really, from being mm-hmm. rebuilt, thinking that those are the two areas from which Judah could restage a revolt. Yeah, and so, why they would revolt, probably, because I'm assuming Nebuchadnezzar knows, or he obviously has some knowledge of what Jeremiah has been preaching to the people about Babylon, uh, and that's probably why he says, you know, to treat Jeremiah so well, because he thinks of Jeremiah as a supporter for him. Right. Uh, and he knows that whatever the people hear the word of the Lord say is what they're going to do. So if the word of the Lord now turns around to say against Babylon, uh, which it already is, I guess Nebuchadnezzar just didn't know about that, because Jeremiah prophesied in chapter... Um, what was it, right. Yeah, he had some prophecies that Nebuchadnezzar probably would not enjoy. Yeah, you know, 70 years, yeah. and this is over with, and then my wrath turns yeah, yeah. to Babylon. Mm-hmm. But I, I see what you're saying there, trying to remove religion, because Nebuchadnezzar's probably trying to cover himself uh, in case the word of the Lord decides to turn against him. If the people forget about the Lord, then there will be no word of the Lord to deter them, I guess, from following him. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he might not have been thinking that, but it's from his point. Well, I of guess view, I'm just thinking that the nationalism of Judah was tied into their politics and religion. There's no separation of church and state. Yeah, right. So he's trying to keep, right. you know, he's trying to keep a revolt from happening. And what better way to do that than to kill all the leaders? So he kills all the religious leaders except for Jeremiah, who wasn't really in the religious establishment. He had been an outcast. Uh, from the religious establishment up to this point and uh, all the kings and princes and noblemen anybody that they could make king and center people around you know the high priest he had to go and so on so um, you know it's just interesting when you start thinking about who was taken who was left behind and picture the new Judah as it was during this time Uh, just several points to make there um, then there's this uh, in chapter 40 verse 5 there's this really yeah. strange thing going on with Jeremiah it's the second time he's been told that he has a choice you can go to Babylon you can live in Jerusalem um, you can live anywhere Doesn't isn't he told he can live anywhere in Judah he wants to live he says uh this guy Nebuzaradan says to him in 40 verse 4, see the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think is good. The whole land, right yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Wherever you want to go. And then verse 5 says, oh, we've got two different translations here. What, is, what does the ESV say? ESV says, if you remain. So that would be uh, Nebuzaradan speaking. Yeah, if you remain. Says, you can do what you want, but if you stay, go to Gedaliah. It's pretty much yeah. how that reads in the ESV. But that's not the literal reading here. I think more literally it says, and this is the New American Standard Bible, as Jeremiah was still not going back, he said, go on back then to get Eliah, the son of Ahikam. And, you know, I don't know exactly how to literally interpret this. There's a whole bunch. But there is one interpretation of this that Jeremiah was hesitating Right. That he wasn't 
you know, staying, he wasn't saying anything. He was just kind of pondering this idea, what would be better for me? What would be better for the people? God had spoken so clearly to this man so many times about what he should do with his life. You know, no, don't marry. Yeah. Um, preach this. Go here. Buy this field. You know, yeah. all these specific things. And now it seems that God is silent, and he's having to make a decision for himself. Right. So he remains, or he's still not going back. There's some sense of that, as Nebuz... This guy's name's driving me crazy. Nebuzaradan. Yeah. Nebuzaradan. Zaradan. That guy, the captain of the guard. He's he's the captain of the guard from now on with me, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, Captain of the bodyguard is saying, you know, you need to make a choice. We're at uh, Rama now. This is the staging area. The yeah. the uh, the caravan is headed out to Babylon. Are you going to get in a seat and go out there? We'll take care of you, or are you going to stay? And of course, he finally decides to stay. But it doesn't seem that he has a mandate from God to do that. He just decides right. to do that on his own. Jeremiah is, you know, I admire him for that because I think life would have been easier for him in Babylon. But I also think that Probably, he loved yeah. his country and he loved his people. And he was very old at this point. He just wanted to stay in Jerusalem. Yeah, a couple things I want to say about that. Um, you know, something you just mentioned, you know, he loved his nation, loved his country. I think that's definitely part of the reason why he would stay um, but I can definitely understand his hesitation. Because like you said, he'd probably have an easier time of it in Babylon. You know, he'd probably be celebrated. The king might even give him some kind of... Well, he already gave him a gift. Now, what exactly that gift was... Yeah, it just says a gift. I couldn't find anything good on that. So what probably some folded money. Just, yeah. You know, but the king already... Go see a movie or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we go see a film. Uh, gave him an allowance of food and a, and a present at the end of verse 5. I mean, if he had gone to the city, I bet Nebuchadnezzar himself would have called Jeremiah in to thank him for, you know, uh, mm-hmm. prophesying against Judah in Babylon's favor. And then I imagine Jeremiah saying something like, well, the word of the Lord is that in 70 years, it's coming to you now. But, yeah. you know, so maybe things wouldn't have been as good for him in Babylon. I don't know. But... It was attractive to go. Why did he stay? I think I have two uh, reasons here. Why I just I used to just have one, but now that you've said you know his nationality and things, I have two. Uh, for that reason, but he also knew the word of the Lord from Jeremiah twenty five twelve to fourteen, which is actually that prophecy against Babylon. So Jeremiah knows mm-hmm. there's no yeah. hope in Babylon. You know what? I'm right. going to go to Babylon, and then Babylon's going to be overthrown. I have to do all this stuff again. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he knows that Babylon's not all that stable. Because just in, I mean, 70 short years, it's going to be overthrown. Yeah, that's a good point. And it balances out all this talk we've heard about Nebuchadnezzar being the servant of the Lord. Yeah. Uh, that's not to be understood in the sense that Nebuchadnezzar was like a servant in the capacity of Jeremiah. He was a uh-huh. tool in the hands of God's wrath. That's it. And then after that, he was going to be punished as 
all sinners are punished. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Now, um, do we want to talk about the Ammonites and this whole little caveat to the situation? Yeah, I'll throw it. It's a very complicated political time. Yeah, this stuff, as I was reading these chapters today, I was thinking this would make for a good... I mean, this would make for a good TV show right here. Because there's so many different things going on at once. Yeah, it almost had to be a a TV show rather than a movie because... Yeah, you couldn't get it. There's so many episodes, you know. The movie would just go on and on and on as more and more intrigue. Yeah. and It's almost like a soap opera to one point. You know, there's so much crazy stuff going on at once. Mm -hmm. You know... um, a lot of shows that try and be realistic probably wouldn't even mess with like this kind of storyline, but it's kind of... I haven't seen House of Cards or any of those political thrillers or anything like that, but I imagine this would make for a pretty good um, little miniseries here on the politics of the time. So when I read through this, I thought it was very odd that you know Babylon has come in and destroyed the city, but they have appointed this guy, Gedaliah, well, much like Babylon uh, appointed Zedekiah too, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And then Zedekiah decided to rebel, and then you see what happened. Babylon says, well, if you rebel, this is what's going to happen. We're just going to level you know, the city. We're going to burn everything you think is holy, um, kind of to teach him a lesson. So this guy, Gedaliah, looks like he is, for whatever reason, we don't know, and you know, I'm not sure that it matters all that much. Uh, for the purposes of the story, he might have been submitting to Babylon because Jeremiah said that's what you need to do, or he might have been doing it just so he could be in charge. We don't really know. Uh, given the leadership of Jerusalem, though, for the last long time, I'd say he probably didn't have that pure motives. But even if he did, um, you know, he was he was in line. And so, why on earth would another guy, this Ishmael guy, want to come up and kill him? Another Jewish guy. Why would one Jewish man want to kill the other Jewish man that would incur, again, the wrath of Babylon? And I think it's best understood, really, uh, the warning that Gedaliah gets at the end of chapter 40 uh, really sums it up quickly. It doesn't get too much into the politics behind it. But in verse 14, uh, the warning that comes to him is, Do you know that Balas, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael to kill you? So it's not so much of a Jewish man against a Jewish man for authority in Judah, which is kind of what I thought at first glance. But it's really Ammon versus, or I guess like you worded it, Drew, and I uh, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but what you were saying in the break was really the king of Ammon is trying to just take advantage of a week in Judah, right? Yeah, yeah, which is a... War that's been going on for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. What you have is a big, you got a big empire to the south, Egypt. You got a big empire in the north, Babylon. And in between, you have all these smaller little um, countries yeah. like Syria and Ammon and the Moabites and so forth. So some of them, like Philistia, has been totally wiped out. Some of them are still surviving from the days of Moses. Mm-hmm. And they form coalitions at times when there's a common enemy. 
but when one is weakened, the others try to come in and take over their territory. Yeah. Because they're thinking, you know, I guess if if we can gain a, a foothold over here, get a little more land, get a little more populous, get a bigger army, then maybe we can keep Babylon out of here and be a independent nation and not have to pay this tribute. Because mm-hmm. the tribute was crippling to them. I don't know what the motives of Ammon is. I think the story is told simply to advance, to get us to next week, about how yeah. so many people wind up in Egypt. But, um, you know, it is an interesting little caveat to the whole story. Something you wouldn't expect, because you think, okay, once Babylon crushes these people, there's going to be no more rebellion and no more problems with his appointed leader. Mm-hmm. And he, here's another appointed leader assassinated. Mm-hmm. So we're, we, we've got more turmoil as we go into next week's episode, uh, and we'll talk about it then. Well, that's that's quite a bit to chew on. Yeah. Let's take a little bit of a break, and uh, when we come back for the third part, we'll, we'll talk about some practical applications. We're back for our third section of our podcast where we try to find the meaning of what we're talking about. And I think the overall meaning of maybe the whole book of Jeremiah, but certainly this section that we've been talking about today is the justice of God. And I I put it that way. I want our listeners to think of it more in terms of the justice of God than the judgment of God, although those two words mean basically the same thing. But there are connotations that go with those. When we think about the judgment of God our society has taught us to frown upon that and to think negative thoughts. And uh, But when we think of the justice of God, maybe you will think in terms of His righteousness and His fairness, His willingness to make equal what has been disrupted by man's sin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Christian people, God's people in general, should actually rejoice over the justice of God. I'm not saying we should be happy that the temple was destroyed or that all these people died, but we should be happy that the God we serve is not a God who sweeps sin under the rug and just shrugs his shoulders when men rebel against him or or, um, disrespect him, but that he is a God who stands up for what is right and makes things right even when it's hard to do that. I know that's the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 96 verses 10 and following, when he said, Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in his faithfulness. So the psalmist is rejoicing over the fact that God is coming to judge the earth. And if you think about it, if you think about it objectively, and you take the fear out of it, because all of us have sinned and we fear the judgment of God because we know we don't have the right to stand before His presence um, and be saved. But um, if we think about it objectively, we wouldn't want to serve any other kind of God. I mean, what about a God that would look at the Holocaust, for example, just to choose something that to most people's minds is the most atrocious thing in history? What if we served a God who didn't care anything about what happened in the Holocaust? 
that that wouldn't judge Hitler for what he had done, but just say, you know, let might make right. Whatever, whoever's the strongest deserves to win. But that's not the God we serve. We serve a God who fights for the oppressed, who punishes the wicked, who warns those who get rich in unethical ways that their time is coming. Right. You wouldn't want to serve any other kind of God than that kind of God. In fact, you would accuse a God like that of immorality. Of not being just. Yes, no I'm not, yeah, yeah. I'm not being just. Justice and you only requires have two choices. some kind of punishment for people that break the, what well, I'm trying to think of a word that goes here with justice, I guess the code of justice or whatever. People that go against justice have to be punished for going against it, right? Otherwise, yeah. there is no justice, period. Right. As we say, I don't want, you know, I'm thinking all the movies and stuff, I don't want revenge, I want justice. Yeah. Well, that usually that means involves, I want to put it in somebody else's the law's hands. Yeah, that usually and go through the proper legal channels. That usually justice. involves I'm going to go kill this guy, not because I want well, revenge, but because I want justice. Well, and the problem with revenge and retaliation and vigilanteism is that um, if that's a word, is <laughs> that one person is not capable of knowing all of the facts and being able to be just. Now, we rely on a jury of our peers, hopefully, to mitigate against our individual lackings. And mm-hmm. sometimes, most of the time, that works out great. Sometimes there are miscarriages of justice, even through the jury system. With God, though, His being God, there is never a miscarriage of justice. He is always just. He is always right. faithful. Which helps dampen our desire for retaliation because we were made in the just in the image of God we want justice as well and we might not care for it a whole lot when it's happening to somebody else but whenever we are treated unfairly we want justice what is to keep us from going out and taking matters into our own hands well knowing that God will be just and so that's why Paul was able to write Romans 12:19 and following where he says you know, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Um, if if uh, you're wronged, he says, um, uh, don't retaliate, don't return evil for evil, but leave it to the wrath of God. Yeah. And uh, you can't. It would be unfair for God to ask us to do that if He did not plan to judge the world in righteousness. Right. So as you're looking at this, think of it from that point of view that. Serving a just God is much better than serving an unjust God. Yeah, and even with, like you mentioned, you know, we certainly don't want to say that it was good that all these people were murdered um, or killed when Nebuchadnezzar came in, but at the same time, I mean, what, uh, if God didn't punish Israel, what would have been fair, you know? I'm trying to think of, and I think of people... Allow them to continue sacrificing their children? Yeah. I'm Is that better? What's what's really righteous here? Uh, you know, I'm reminded when we first started, Jeremiah chapter 5, there's a phrase in verse 9 and verse 29 where God says, Shall I not punish them for these things? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation like this? You know, it's asking the question, Should I not do this? And obviously the idea there, everybody understands in their mind, Well, yeah. Of you course know, you should. It yeah. might not be... You know, the 
I, I don't know. There just has that's, to be. That's a great way to handle a person who's being unreasonable. Yeah. Is the, is the way he just turns that question on them. Okay, then what would you do? You know, yeah. that's another way of putting it. Should I should I not do that? Let's consider the alternative. Yeah. I sit back and just let sin reign and get worse and worse and worse. What kind of a world does that look like? Yeah. You know, um, and I think it's interesting also to note here because I'm thinking of uh, people that read stuff like this and say God's not real because He's not just. You know, He's not moral, and He is allowing all His people to die. Well, look at if we think about this in terms of justice. When do we? When do people feel that God is unfair? Uh, maybe when they feel that God has abandoned them. I think mm-hmm. is a big reason why. Uh, we feel when they like, don't understand why some tragedy is coming to their life. Right, and they feel like God's nowhere to be found. God doesn't love them. Mm-hmm. You know, if God loved me, this wouldn't happen. Well, what is? I mean, I just think it's interesting here. Why is God upset with the people of Israel? Well, the people of Israel, unlike God, unlike God, have actually abandoned God, and we read as much. Mm-hmm. In the very beginning, they did abandon him. They did not love him. They acted against him. So the very same charges that I hear people bring against God all the time. Uh, no, God's actually on the opposite side of that. He's the one being treated like that. And so, you know, our people's justice for God, if they think he has abandoned them, is for them to just forget all about him and, you know, move on, act as if he doesn't exist, whatever. However, they can get rid of God in their life. Yeah. Well, God's solution here is to punish his people, not just to abandon them, not to uh, just forget about them. He doesn't set them aside. Now, he casts them out, uh, which I still think is probably better than setting them aside. He but he's preserving them. a remnant. Yeah, 70 years, they're coming back. Yeah. So, you know, and at the end, at the end of uh, chapter, at the end of uh, the very end of the book, you have Jehoiachin being cared for and right. being given a regular allowance, and there's this Davidic line that for some unknown reason, we know what it is, mm-hmm. but a war under from a worldly perspective, for some unknown reason, is being preserved. Why was Zedekiah slaughtered and Jehoiachin cared for? He is the seed of the Davidic line from whom right. comes the Messiah who reigns over all. Is God's right. plan all along. And that's the ultimate justice there. Yes. Because all this penalty that we're reading be about here. the one through whom justice will come. Right. Um, so, another thing that's tied into this is the patience of God. Here we are on episode 11, and this is really the first time where God punishes anybody. Mm-hmm. So far, the only yeah. ones being punished are the good people. Now, Jeremiah's yeah. thrown into a cistern, he's thrown into... The house of Jer- uh what's his name, Jonathan the scribe. Yeah, he's uh, put in stocks. He's mocked. He's ordered. Uh, you know, he's on trial for his life. And all yeah. the bad people are doing whatever they want to do. And God is pleading with them to stop, to repent, to amend your ways. But finally, the patience of God has its limits, and He does what He said He was going to do. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some of those kings. What wound up happening to them? 
thing well, that most Josiah, of them you know, was killed in battle. He was There's a good another, king. Yeah, that's another good guy. Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz. It's the three-month guy, right? Three-month guy. I forgot what happened to him. Jehoiakim was thrown over the wall or something, and the dogs ate him. Yeah. And then uh, Jehoiachim was taken captive. Mm-hmm. And then Zedekiah, you know, probably got the worst of it. But still, family very murdered. patient with all the the evil rulers that we did an episode on. Seems like a while yeah. back now. You know, it's not like they were all gathered together in one spot and then just murdered. Kind of like I'm thinking of some of the prophets of Baal with Elijah. Yeah. Um, that reminds me, I forgot something in the second section about those guys cutting themselves. Going back to mm-hmm. Elijah on Mount Carmel, but oh well, we missed that. Um, are you ready to move on to another apply yeah. point? Yeah, we got two. Okay, here's the last thing. We just got a few minutes left. Um, Gedaliah. I must call him Gedaliah again. Gedaliah. <laughs> um, not a real smart guy, I guess. Or he's naive, one of the two. I don't know if you can be naive and still you know, be considered wise. I think that's the opposite. Um, but he's not, from what we had to see here, he's not real smart because he refuses to listen to this warning that he was given by Johanan uh, that says this guy's Ishmael is going to come in and try and kill you. Now, he says, I I guess just because Ishmael is his fellow Jewish... Uh, his response is very It makes me think immature. he knows him. But, yeah. I, you know, I don't know. We don't have any evidence to show he does or doesn't. But I think just the nationality is enough for him to say this. He says, you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. You're lying. Ishmael wouldn't do that. Do not do this thing. Yeah. He's not going to kill me. Well, let's... I'm just thinking, if I'm Gedaliah living at this time, and I mean, even if I'm just in power, maybe you call it paranoia, whatever you want. Yeah. But if I'm in These power at this times. time... I don't want to be in power because I know somebody's probably going to come and try to kill me. I mean, I just assume... I'm going to be in one of those vineyards keeping yeah. my head down. Yeah, or I let me be an advisor or just don't put me on the no, throne because I don't want to be the guy that gets killed. Yeah. So it's just really foolish of Gedaliah here to say, nah, that's not going to happen. Right. And then the guy Strange. comes in to eat a meal with him, uh, kills him, and it reminds me of Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 where Jesus tells his followers to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I think, you know, it's a good lesson for us to learn today, too. I don't think that we should be um, questioning of other people all the time uh, to the point of it being unhealthy and where we have trust issues, but at the same time, I don't think we need to live in this kind of um, la-la land where we think everybody is always having the best motives. I think it's good to try and see the good in everyone. Um, But when there's hard information, when there's facts confronting you, don't turn a blind eye to it. That's exactly what I was about to say. You need to look for the good, but don't be blind to the bad. Mm-hmm. I guess because it's out there, and of all people, Gedaliah should have known that. Yeah, and so I think you know we should. There's a lot of application there for in the way that we uh, interact, even within the church. You know, I hate to say it, but it's you know how many times do you hear horror stories of leaders 
at a at a church that have been put in prison for this or that, or they get busted mm-hmm. for doing this or doing this. And you know, when you think back on it, probably a lot of the signs were there. Yeah, and, always. And lots of people should have. You know, there's always responsibility on somebody to where they should have said something or they should have. Nobody wants to be the Johannan. Nobody wants to be the bad guy. Right. And some of those people probably because they're thinking, well, they did this, but they don't mean it. You know, they're just, then they make excuses for them or they try and see, you know, I guess one of the good things there is they're trying to see the good in somebody Mm -hmm. and refusing to accept that maybe, you know, the good is outweighed by the bad. But I just, I can think of so many occurrences to where all terrible things could have been avoided if there would have been a Johannan, mm-hmm. if there would have been somebody willing to listen to the mm-hmm. Johannan. Because sometimes there is a Johannan, but the people that can make a difference just choose not to listen because they're like, well, yeah. no, that's not. Oh, yeah? You know, not this guy. We can trust this guy. Or, right. Well, uh, that wraps it up for this episode. And uh, we want to ask you, we want to thank you, first of all, for listening. We also want to ask you to follow us on Twitter and to uh, like us on Facebook, to send us your feedback, if, if you've got some, to akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. Visit us online at d66.net. Also, go to iTunes and leave us a review or a, a rating. Many of you have done that for us. We're still behind whenever you search The 66 Podcast. For some reason, even if you put that in verbatim, we come up number five in the list. What we want is when you put that in, we're the first thing that pops up. Mm -hmm. Uh, By just leaving us a review, just a really quick, short review, uh, saying what you want. Maybe you hate our guts. You can put that in there. Uh, Maybe you like the stars on it and then say horrible. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, any review, I'm told, any rating helps bring us up in the rankings. And the higher up we're in the rankings, the more we pop up out there in the world and more attention we get. And if you believe in what we're doing in this podcast and you want more people to hear it, that's an easy way that you can help us get that done. A lot of you have already done that, and we appreciate it. And we ask if you haven't done it yet and you enjoy the show and you, you have something to say, um, go there and uh, figure out how to do that. Uh, but we are we we still have a few more to go on Jeremiah. We need to quit saying it. <clears throat> we said two more last time. This is episode eleven. I know we're doing thirteen. We do have two more. This time. So we have two more for real, no lying. And then we're wrapping this up. You know, Jerusalem is gone, so this has to yeah. be ending soon. So we've got a couple more episodes to go, and we're looking forward to uh, our next projects coming up soon.